I'm Kristen Meyershand, and this is The Apiango Line, a podcast dedicated to investigating, preserving, and promoting the unique heritage and cultural history of the upper Madawaska Valley here in eastern Ontario, Canada. It's a very special day here today in Barry's Bay. It's Father's Day, and so we'd like to wish all fathers everywhere a very rich and wonderful time doing what dads do best raising their kids with a sort of character that makes this area, if not this country, something pretty special. One of the dads we're here to think about today is Henry Nicholson. He was born in 1915, just as the First World War, or the Great War as it is often called, was getting underway. He died in August 2007, but in the nearly 93 years Henry Nicholson lived on this good earth, he left quite an impression as a lumberman, baseball player, Little League Baseball coach and, most of all, the father of six children, 11 grandchildren, and nine great-grandchildren. Joining us today are two of those children, Barb and Dan, along with Dan's daughter, Kate. They're here to do two things. Firstly, to read Henry's own words, and secondly, to share their own very personal memories of what it was like to have Henry as a dad or granddad. First off, We've managed to find a nearly 30-year-old transcript of an interview Henry gave in 1992, and that was published in Madawaska Valley Memories, a two-volume oral history that remains to this day available in the public library here in Barry's Bay. Barb, Dan, and Kate have all agreed to read those intriguing words of Henry Nicholson as only they can. But the real fun will start afterwards, when the three of them get around to reminiscing about Henry and sharing their own very personal memories of what many people in Barry's Bay still remember, a man of infinite jest and genial good humor. But first, let's hear from the man himself, the written words of Henry Nicholson and what he once told an inquisitive interviewer about his unique life and fascinating times growing up in Barry's Bay early in the 20th century. I got on with Murray's at 16. The highest grade of school in this little town was grade 8. If you wanted to go to college or something, you had to go to Renfrew or Pembroke. My parents had no money to send me to school. My dad was working on the Madawaska Road for 88 cents a day. That was a real depression, not a recession. There was no work. There was no nothing. So I got on with Murray's at 16 and and I was only 15 to tell you the truth. I worked there from age 15 to 65. As time went by, I drove a truck, I drove a bulldozer, and that was the way I made a living. Cars came into existence in a bigger way in the 30s, and the roads got better. Things progressed as time went on. People were a little different at that time. Today it's run, shout, push, and everybody's in a hurry. If I go to town today to talk to somebody in the gang I know, they haven't got time to talk. They're busy. They have to go to the mall, or go to Yakabuskies, or go to the store someplace. It's a big change. In the old days, people had time to talk to you. Today, I don't think so. There was a lot of visiting in those days, you know. In the summer, You had your gardens to talk about and how many children are going to school. You never talked about politics. Politics was out. In those days, there was no politics. Your neighbors or all of your relatives would come. 
Maybe one gang would come this Sunday and another gang would come the next Sunday. The in-laws would come, or the outlaws. I was born in 1915 and raised in Barry's Bay. There was lots of hustle and bustle, but I would say there were no more than 500 people in Barry's Bay in those days. Anybody who drifted in here came through on lumber business, and he had to come by train. In 1927, our wage was only about 250 or two and a quarter a day for a 10-hour day, six days a week. My dad in those days, he had it tough, but there was a different attitude. Everybody helped one another. If somebody was going to fix the fence, he would call the neighbor to come and help. If they were going to build a shed or something, they would all come and help. You see, in those days, it was all horses. Everybody came to church in a horse and buggy and sleighs in the winter. There were no cars, so everything was slowed down. If farmers were going to town from home or going to church, some old lady or some old gentleman would come out and want to talk to them. They would want to know how many cords of pulp they cut this winter, and they would start a conversation. They would be glad to stop for an hour and talk, but today they would run you over if you went to stop them. And that's true. The early 30s was a real depression, and it was worse here than what it was in the city. Well, food was fine, but clothes was the big thing. There were better clothes thrown out in the garbage today than what we went to church with. In those days, you went to church with your gum rubbers on and your Mackinac pants or your Mackinac coat in the winter. There were no parkers or anything like that. If you were a young lad, your mother put a scarf on you, and if you were coming home facing the wind, you pulled the scarf up higher over your face. You survived. But you try to tell that to your children today, they laugh at you. You're guffinous. But no, it's true. And that is what we went through. But what about the gang before us? I don't know too much about them, but it was tough. Gall darn right. In the spring, you could not run to the store and spin that thing around and pick out your seeds you wanted. If you didn't have them at home, or if you could not get some from the neighbors, you were beat. You had to keep your own seeds the year round. Nothing was handy in those days. Pretty well, anything you wanted, you had to keep. There was no gall darn refrigerators and stuff. You had a coal oil lamp. We didn't think it was tough, though, for that was all there was. We didn't know what was ahead of us. As time went on, things picked up, and they got rid of the horses and got the machinery into the bush. That frigged everything. That is what frigged our country and our bush. If they had kept some horses and some small gangs in the bush, we would be busy today. But nope, everybody wanted to cut. And now they are howling for more. They are raising heck, and there is no timber. Well, they have it all cut out. The timber could not grow fast enough for the machinery. There were restrictions in the old days. You could only cut a tree if it was big enough. So a smaller tree was left there. It stayed behind to grow. And you always said, well, the next gang will get that when they come back through here again. When we were at camp, 40 hardwood logs was a good day's work. You cut 40 hardwood trees down, and you cut them up for logs, and you got them on the skidway, and that was a day's work for six men. There were six men in a gang, and a gang could cut 40 hardwood logs 
or 85 or 90 softwood logs. That was a day's work. But today, two men will cut 200 logs with all this machinery. More than 200 logs, more like 300. Before I went to the lumber camp, I lived in the town here. The school was where the beer store is now. I lived just over the hill, so I went home for lunch. We had about an acre of land, and we always had a cow. We kept a cow year-round, and we had a pig the year-round. We would kill one in the fall, and then raise one. My mother always had a good bunch of chickens. She had 30, 40 chickens all the time, and that was a big help. We had a big garden, and there was always little chores to do after school. There were seven of us in the family. One fellow would shovel a path here, the other fellow would shovel a path there, and the other fellow went for the mail or something, you know. I only went to grade 8 in those days. It was called fourth class. Grade 8 was fourth class. That was the end of the education here. If you wanted to go to school, you would have to go to Renfrew or Pembroke. And where was the money going to come from? We had no relatives to stay with, so we could not do it. So my brother and sisters, they all scattered as soon as they were able to. Once uh, they were 16 and able to get a job, they went out on their own. They either went to Ottawa or Toronto. They got a job in a restaurant or some darn thing, but I stayed here. I was never a city man. I still hate the city, to tell the truth. It was a good life in the lumber camp. There was fresh air. You were out in the fresh air all the time. You weren't cooped up in a building with a fan blowing all over you. The lumber camp was at Cross Lake in Nipissing. It was uh, pretty isolated. There were just a few farmers down the road, some quite a ways. I was only a boy. Well, I was 16 when Murray started up in Cross Lake. I was a young, skinny little lad too, you know. Well, they said, we'll take a chance on you anyway. So I went up on the train, and we walked in 15 miles from Madawaska. The train was going right through to Perry Sound. We got off at Madawaska and walked in. We asked a few fellows where Cross Lake was, and they told us, and we found the spot, but it was quite a setback there. Those days, it was no place like home. There were no sheets or mattresses or anything. You just slept on boards. You went to the hay shed and you got some straw or hay and then they would give you a blanket to put on that. That was your mattress for a few years until things got better. Going to camp after being at home, I was lost completely. I had never worked in the bush before, but there were some very good men. Well, there are good men today yet, but those men were really good men. They helped you. I knew nothing about the bush, but they told me what to do and how to get there. In our gang, there were two men cutting logs with a cross-cut saw, and there were two men cutting trails to put the road for the horses to get to that log. In the bush, it was all sleighs, horses and sleigh. A fellow would get that log, and he would bring it down the skid where they would pile the log up. There would be a teamster and a roller to pile the logs up. You would pile them up high so you wouldn't lose too much space. The higher you got the pile, the less clearance you had to make for the pile. The log makers would tell you what to do. You weren't long catching on. You would talk about it in the camp. They taught us how to cut the brush, these old fellows. 
when we first went to the camp, naturally we thought that you would cut down. But we would hammer and brush down. But if you cut the brush down like that, your axe would hit a stone or the ground and dull your axe. They showed us how to cut up so you wouldn't dull your axe. Little things like that. Everybody worked together. Maybe one of the Teamsters would say, Well, your axe looks pretty dull. You better bring it in and sharpen it tonight. How often you had to sharpen your axe would depend on how awkward you were in the bush that day, how many stones you hit. At that time, we didn't know, but we gall darn soon learned. Oh, there were some really good men, and there were a lot of good men yet. It was a good life. We enjoyed it. The cook woke us up at a quarter to six. Six o'clock was breakfast. Breakfast was generally beans. Beans was a big thing. And cold pork and bread. Never any toast. Maybe there was fresh pork in the camp, but we always got salty pork in the bush. Tea, no milk or sugar, but we didn't think it was tough, for there was lots of it, more than we had at home. Then as soon as it started breaking daylight, you would head for the bush. As your timber got further back, you had further to walk. Sometimes you walked back two or three miles. It was a little cold at times. In those days, the winters were more severe than what they are today. And holy doodle, there was snow piled against the fences and everything. It was tough. You wore generally Mackinac pants and a lot of homemade clothes, homemade sweaters, gum rubbers, and you wore a fur cap and you pulled it over your ears and made a few faces. There will be five other lads with you in a gang. There would be the teamster, the one they call the roller, two log makers, and another trail cutter with myself. The trail cutter is a fellow that cuts the road for the horses to get to the logs. Your log makers were men that had experience. They wouldn't put a greenhorn cutting logs. The trail cutter cuts the road for the skidway and cleans out the skidway for the logs to be piled. That went on day after day. If you had a good cut of timber, your skidway would last three or four days. Then it got too far for the horses to skid. Then you would cut another skidway along the road. The road was all cut by hand. Of course, the road would only be about 10 or 12 feet wide. The roller had to know what he was doing. It was a kind of a hard thing. The logs came in here on the skidway, and there were two skids that went up on the skidder, and there were spurs in them. Then the line went around the log, and there was a hook into another log of the skidway, and that is how you pile them up. You never rolled them by hand. The horses would pull the line and pull the log up. I guess the teamster would be the head man of the operation. The teamsters were generally farmers who had their own horses, and the company had a few team of their own too. The teamsters had experience from home, you see. They knew what to do, and they would tell the rest what to do. Oh yes, we thought it went pretty well in those days. The log makers cut the trees. Maybe they are only as far from the skidway as from a walkway to a street when they start. And when they start, there is timber right around the skid. They clean that all out. Two men on a cross-cut saw. When they would fall one tree, they would measure it and maybe get two logs out of it. It was all pretty well even lengths. 12 feet or 14 or 16. The first couple of days... You didn't have many trails to cut for the teamster. Instead, you were cleaning around the skid. There were trees on both sides of the skid, and everything was handy. 
The roller had nothing to do after he got the logs piled up, but he had to try to keep the logs trim on one end. One end had to be pretty, pretty well trimmed, for when the scalers came in to measure them, it wasn't a hard job for the roller, but it was a particular job. The government scalers came in to scale the logs, you see, because the timber on the crown land belonged to the government. It was the trail cutter's job to make the lunch. You got three or four little poles and you put them in a square wherein you made your fire in the center. You boiled your tea, had your lunch, and you would tell a few stories and a few lies, I guess, too. Most of the fellows were farmers. Some of them used to go home on the weekends, walk a couple of miles to see how everything was going at home. Then they would come back with a little story. Maybe they had seen a newspaper and they had seen where something was going on someplace. They would tell you that, and you would tell the other fellow. People weren't as nosy as what they are today. You minded your own business. These days, you try to mind everybody's business. It's a different setup today than what it was then. And then you went back to work all afternoon until it was time to quit. When you got into the camp, it was getting dark. Then you had supper, and you would look to see if the mailman had come in, and if you had any mail. We always had a very good supper. Generally, we would have beef and some potatoes and carrots for a vegetable. There was what they called a big root house outdoors. That is what they had in the camp. They had all their vegetables in there, you see. As time went on, they would bring out a cabbage for a vegetable today and a carrot or a turnip the next day. We got a lot of nice soup in the camp, really good soup, homemade, out of good soup bones. For dessert, you generally got apple pie or raisin pie, raisin or apple. I guess that was the only two that we generally got in the camp. It was a little tough for a few years, but as time went on, it got better. You would look to see if the mailman had come in or if anybody got a newspaper. You would generally like to hear from home. Maybe you would have a game of cards. We played 45. If you were real tired, you fell asleep right after supper. There was no liquor in the camp. Well, maybe somebody brought a bottle back at Christmas, but he had it god darn well hidden. He didn't even treat his best friend. Kept it for himself. You could not afford too much. And then you go to bed at 9 o'clock, up at a quarter to 6, and in those days you worked on Saturday too. The first two years I worked, 1931 and 1932, all we got was $12 a month, for 26 days of work. You could not buy much with that. So when you came home at Christmas, you bought a few presents for the gang and you had to spend the rest of for some good clothes to go back after Christmas. The weather was pretty cold, you know, but everybody helped one another. There was a different attitude in life to what there is now. Things have sure changed. I often wondered how our grandparents got along. I didn't know much about the gang before us. J.R. Booth was still in existence when I was young, but they were starting to phase out. You've heard of J.R. Booth? He was a lumber baron in Ottawa. You must have seen a picture of J.R. Booth with a flat car, a square timber. It was J.R. Booth that helped to build the railroad through here. All his timber and all his logs all went to Ottawa by train. Some of his timber went on the Pitawawa River. The rest all went by train through here. J.R. Booth had a bush limit that started 
right in Madawaska and went right back to the big up Yongo and all through that part of the country. He had the right to cut all the trees and there were trees there, there were old wallopers. It was virgin pine there. It was never cut, it was never touched. He bought the limit from the government. I guess in those days it was up for bid. Booth had a bunch of men traveling the bush all one summer and fall. They went back there to Ottawa and reported to Booth and Booth bought it. Money was the big thing and Booth had enough money to buy it, so he got it. They tell me that most of Booth's timber went overseas. Big square timber, maybe 16 inches square or 18 inches square. It was hewed right in the bush, but it went over there someplace. Booth even had a railroad track right into his timber. He brought it out on his own flat cars. He brought it out to Madawaska and then the CN took it to Ottawa. And then, I don't know what happened to J.R. Booth. Maybe the railroad was charging him too much freight. I think he pulled out of here in about 1929. J.R. Booth. Nobody knew who he was or what nationality he was, you know. He was kind of a mystery man from the start and a very, very close operator. His men were paid by the month. They worked 26 days. And if they got 12 or $15 a month and they're bored, that was it. Pretty small. Of course, back then, eggs were only 10 cents the dozen. Bread was 10 cents a loaf. That was the goal in those days. Oh, there are a lot of stories to hear from the gang that went before me. Where we were, we had to draw all our lumber and wood out to Madawaska and load it in a boxcar. But as time went on, trucks came into existence and roads got a shade better. I was never particularly horse crazy. I liked horses and everything, but when the day was over, that was it. If you're driving a truck, you get out of the truck and the truck stays there. Our first truck was a 35 Chef. I got another truck in 37 to haul lumber and wood to Madawaska. See, wood was a big, big thing. All your factories were using wood in those days. That is before they got into the oil and electricity. All these factories burned slab wood, four foot lengths. A lot went to Renfrew. There was a lot of factories there and they were all steam, so they used wood. When I got a truck, I was no more in the bush. I was generally around the mill. I went out to Madawaska to load up and then I went to Renfrew or someplace with a load of lumber. You load it all by hand. Nowadays, it's all forklifts and everything, how things have changed. I got on driving a bulldozer in 1944. I was making roads in the bush for the loggers and I stayed 22 years driving a bulldozer in the bush making roads. I knew a little bit about making roads. One man with a bulldozer made as much roads as 50 men used to make. When the bulldozer came into existence, that was the end of the road gang. The bulldozer eliminated a lot of manual labor. In my younger days, when you built a house, if you wanted to have a basement, you dug it with the horses and a scraper. A scraper was something like a bucket, but the front was open and there were two handles behind. The horses pulled it and you held the handles and scraped along and loaded it. Then, when you come to the pile, you let the handles go and it dumped itself. Turn around, go back for another load. Hard work. 
Now you get a bulldozer and in about four hours it's all set to go. It's hard to explain how you know where to put a road but when you were working with horses everything had to be on a level or a very very little of a hill for a logging road. You had to be at the low land to get to the lake. Most of your logs went to a lake and then you pulled them up to the sawmill. But if you had a hill that was a good incline, the horses could not pull that. You had to zigzag around the hills and keep to lowland. Generally you would follow the creeks and small streams in the winter. They were always frozen over, so you would level the road off with snow. There was lots of snow. You might make the road right on the creek. In those days they had severe winters and it froze very well. Then you tramped it, put the horses on the trail dragging a log behind them, that would level it off. Some places you might have to put in a few poles or stakes where there was a big hole. Then you could pack snow on top of that and it would freeze solid. You'd go back there in the summer and you would wonder how in the hell you ever traveled on this thing. If I was talking to one of my chums they would know, but you or somebody else would not know. You could not see it. You would say, oh you're full of wheat or something. It's, it's the truth. When it was horses, you'd pull the sleighs down on the uh, low ground to the lakes. When the trucks came, it didn't matter where in the hell you went, uphill or downhill, you had the power to do that. But the horses didn't. After Christmas, it was cold enough to get on the lakes. That is when the sleigh haul started. You started to draw your logs out of the bush, to the lakes or the river, or wherever you wanted them put. The Teamsters would get up at 4 o'clock to feed their horses. You pulled out of the stable with your horses at 5 o'clock. A lot of times you were loaded and gone to the dump before daylight. And the winters were a lot more severe than they are today. This younger gang today, if they had to go through that now, they wouldn't. You can't get a young lad to pile wood today. Too gold darn hard. I tried to get a young lad to shovel some odds and and ends? Oh no, gotta go to the rink to go skating. Someplace else. Not gonna shovel no darn snow. But you have to go with the times today or you wouldn't survive, I guess. I guess a lot didn't survive. Today, if you have a cough or a cold, you run to the doctor. In those days, there was no doctor. After the first two years in the camp, a doctor came in from Whitney about once a month. He'd get off the train and there was always a fellow there with a team of horses for delivering. You take the doctor into the camp. The doctor would leave some cough medicine there for you or a few pills. If you had a pain or an ache, you went and told him. He'd look at you and say, well, maybe tomorrow you'll be better, but he'd never give you anything. Today, everybody's got two or three bottles of medicine and a half a bushel of pills handy, and that's going to cure them. In those days, there was nothing like that. The pills you got in those days, well, you could swallow them or wash your hair or your feet or anything. They were an all-purpose pill, and the one color too. I liked it better in those days to be truthful about it. Everything was slowed down a lot more. You took your time, and whenever you did, you didn't break your neck, you didn't break anything, you were damn careful. You watched your axe handle, that you didn't break it, or you would have to go back to the camp and get another one. You were careful, but today, if there were any tools you had, you kept good care of them. You know what I mean? Because they, they had to last you. I'm not a bit sorry you went through that, for it was a good, healthy life, tell you the truth. Those days, 
There was no such a thing as vitamins and all this gall-darn stuff. The sun, fresh air, I think that was the best of any. Those days you didn't chew the rag. Well, you complained about the cold, but you kept going, and that kept your body warm. It was beautiful. You took an interest in things. You went into the camp in September, and you stayed there until Christmas. Then, you walked out 15 miles to catch the train to come home. Then, if Christmas was today, you went back tomorrow on the train to the camp. Well, horses were the only power you had in the camp in the early days. So you had a big bunch of horses in the stable. If you wanted them to work, you had to feed them. And if you were feeding them, you wanted them to work. It was the same as having a truck today. You want to get your truck in the road. If the truck is not working, there's nothing coming in. It was the same with horses. The worst thing was when we were in the bush after a big heavy snowfall. Especially if you went back after Christmas and there was a storm at Christmas. Did you ever see the trees with all the snow hanging down? You went back after Christmas and all the trees were hanging down and you thought, oh golly, what did we do with our money? You mean we're back to make more? Why didn't we hang on to what we had instead of spending it at Christmas? You would start into the bush and when you hit the first tree, the snow would pour down the back of your neck. Oh, that woke you up, I'll tell you. Of course, when you came home for Christmas, you didn't have much money. You might have three months in. October, November, December. You might have a little bit of September, but you wouldn't have much money. You wouldn't have any more than $45, if you had $45. So you could not buy too much. You just sat down, sent an order to Eaton's for mitts and socks. I used to buy my mother a little present, maybe a pair of shoes or maybe enough money for a bag of flour. Flour was only $2 a bag those days. Everything was cheap and good too. Now there's no real stuff. It's all plastic. Yeah, things were different. My mother was very handy with a sewing machine. She was very, very handy. When I came home from the camp with some rips and tears, she would patch them up. She fixed everything up for me. If the toes were out of my socks, she'd darn them. She got me all fixed up for my trip back. She did laundry on the washboard. There were no washing machines. Of course, you did your own wash in the camp every three weeks. You had to. There were things in your underwear that were moving. You had to wash your underwear or you'd scratch the back off yourself. <laughs> that was one bad thing in the camp, those crawlers. Lice. Where in the name of God did they come from? I don't know. I guess they came from uncleanliness. But they would mark you up pretty well. When you got home, you took your clothes off someplace where it was good and cool, and you left them. Generally, that was in the back kitchen. You took a new set of clothes, and the old ones went into the boiling water. I'm starting to scratch already talking about this. On Sunday, there were two wash tubs in the can. You had a big cooler, a big black pot, and I mean a big one. It would hold about 30 gallons of water. That was hung up, and there was lots of wood. So you made a fire and boiled your water Sunday. You washed your shirt and your underwear. You threw them in the boiling water first and got everything calmed down. Then you would rub them on the washboard and hang them up to dry someplace outside. The men all waited their turn to wash. Maybe there would be 10 or 12 men washed this Sunday and 10 or 12 men washed next Sunday. Quite a thing. 
All us younger gang, we all went to fish on Sunday. We fished through the ice. We caught some nice fish. Some of the lads kept their fish. The cook used to cook ours. There were a lot of fish in those days, holy doodle. In the summer, you saw the logs that you cut in the winter. We would be about 14 or 15 men, about 14 men in the mill in the summer. And then in the fall, when your lumber was dry, you had to draw it out to the railroad at Madawaska and put it in a boxcar. That is the way things went. The railroad ties were the worst. They were heavy and hard to handle, hard to lift, and all by hand. But we were young. We thought we were strong and healthy and full of vim and vigor, so we didn't mind it. I stayed up there at the mill until they moved to Madawaska. Then I used to go back and forth. I was either driving the truck in Madawaska or leveling off some ground with a bulldozer. In the winter, when they went far back, I might be away for a week. But we were always home for the weekend. They cut out that Saturday working and gave you another day of the weekend to work around the house. But you know, they had Saturdays in the cities and all over, long before we got it here. It was 10-hour days too. It makes a person think of the post office gang. They get $17 an hour, and there's no heavy lifting to it. And they want more. Not satisfied. That is what's wrong today. Most of your gang are not satisfied. But I always looked at the bright side anyway. As long as you got the day in, in a good way, and no trouble. People were more jolly, and there was more vim and vigor to them than there is today. You go talk to anybody today, there is something wrong with them. They have got a pain, or an ache, or they see a fellow pass and give him a little lecture because his hair is too long or something. There was nothing like that years ago. Everybody was full of vim and vigor, and full of hellery too. Hellery is when you play little tricks on fellows, you know? Maybe you put something under his hat, or put a bug in his cap, or something like that. You set some kind of a trap for him. I got into my share of Hillary. I was kind of lined up for that stuff. If I thought I could play a little trick, I would do it. When margarine first came out, you got a little package with coloring in it. Do you remember that? The margarine was white. If you wanted it yellow, you mix this little package of yellow coloring in with it. Well, after we were done with our meal in the cookery, we had to take our plates into the kitchen and pile them up with the rest of them. Well, the cook didn't use that coloring in the margarine, so there was some of that stuff left over. So I took it and I put it in the bull cook's cap and it was raining that day. Well, sir, the bull cook went outside to bring in some wood and his cap got wet. Well, he was rubbing his head and everything and Lord God, that night he was blonde. So the gang started to tease him, you know? A fool your age, dyeing your hair. He never knew who it was. He never found out. If he had found out, I guess he would have shot me. Because the margarine coloring colored his hair and scalp, you see. But he never found out. You played little tricks like that. The bull cook used to draw his wood from where it was piled to the cookery or the sleep camp. He had to draw it in on the sleigh. So he had a nice sleigh there and some fellow maybe threw a sleigh up on the roof. Cookie could not find his sleigh, so he would blame somebody. Oh, I never seen your damn sleigh. If you would look around, you would find it. Maybe two days after, some guy would say, when are you gonna take your sleigh off of the roof? Stuff like that. The bull cook had to bring water into the cookery and into the sleep camp 
and sweep the floors. The bull cook had a lot of jokes played on him, but he played something on somebody too, you know. Like sometimes, you had two fellows' pairs of boots in the camp. The bull cook would take one boot from here and put it over there. He would switch their rubbers on them, and then that fellow's boots would not match. This fellow maybe didn't look at his boots, and he didn't know that he had that fellow's boots. The bull cook did that. Then they would start shouting. Who did that? Nobody did. But they knew it was the bull cook who did it, for he was the only man in the camp in the daytime. The others were all out, but there was never any damage done. Just to start up something fun, you know? A bull cook would be a rough and tumble fellow, where a cook would have to be a little fellow, neat in appearance and cleanliness. The bull cook would go around maybe with a sleeve out of his shirt or chewing tobacco on his shirt or something like that. That was his line of work. But the cook could not do that. The bull cook and the cook were two different things. And the cook had what they called cookies. They set the table and washed the dishes, swept the floor, and kept the cookery clean. The cookies were young lads. These cookies had to peel the potatoes and such. I never had that lined up. I wanted to be out in the open. I didn't want to be penned in like those fellows. There was a foreman and a clerk and the gangs. The boss would be the foreman, the foreman in the bush. He would be the boss for all the gangs. Every night, you had to go in to tell the clerk how many logs you cut, 40 or 60. You kept track of that, and you told him the number of your gang. Your gang was numbered one, two, three, up to maybe seven. Then, when the scalers went to count your logs, if there was something wrong, he could go look in the book and say, this is the gang here that didn't cut those logs. Then, you had a blacksmith, and he fixed up everything, broken chains and stuff. He had his own little place. He fixed up all the woodwork to be done, the axe handles and can't hook stocks. Then, the scalers might come once a month. Murray's never stamped their logs, but Booth's did. The scalers had to stamp Booth's logs. When they sent the logs down the river, they were afraid some other company in the same river might get their logs mixed up. But Murray's never stamped their logs. They just came out of the bush, right onto the lake, and up to the sawmill. You had to measure every log. They would put their rule on it and see how many feet were in it by the length of it. They measured every log. Today they weigh your logs. There is a big scale at the sawmill, so many ton, and then they figure out how many board feet is in it. Whether they are up or under, I don't know, but this is the way they do it now. So they eliminated all your scalers for the forestry. I guess they kept on some of the older lads, but the younger gang, I guess they just let them go or put them cutting brush. There are a lot of jobs gone now, and especially in the forestry part of it. Machinery's taken over. One bad mistake Booth made was that Booth never planted trees. Murray's did, of late years, but everybody should have planted. Now if you cut down one tree, you are supposed to plant three. But do they? Who looks after that? I don't know. Nobody knows. No, they really let the forestry go to hang. It was poor management, put it that way. They thought there was no end to it. They thought they would never run out of wood. Some of them thought that up until a couple of months ago, until the bottom fell out of the basket all at once. It did look like that. Everybody thought that. In wartime, in the late 40s and early 50s, my God, there was a desperate lot of stuff loaded in Barry's Bay. 
They came from all the little hamlets like Cumbermere and Palmer Rapids and all over. You would say there would be nothing left of the bush, but it lasted 40 years more, but then it quit. No more timber. Now you see there is no more cutting in Algonquin Park. That is where most of your timber came from. Oh, there is still some timber to cut, but there is no value in it. It's all small logs, which means narrow lumber. Nobody wants narrow lumber. They want wide lumber if they're going to build. But today, it's all that damn old chipboard and plywood. Most of the lumber went to the States. BC was great country, and it's pretty well thinned out now. The Indians are taking control out there of the timber. Well, it is time somebody did, for the government wouldn't. In BC, an official lands and forest was a part owner of a big lumber company out there. He was a part owner of that gang, and they made him the Minister of Lands and Forests. Holy doodle! And the cat got out of the bag when they found that out. I'll tell you, they fixed that. The Indians even blew up the bridges and wouldn't let them out with their machines. So they put them on a barge and put too much machinery on that barge, and it sank. The Indians were on the shore just whooping it up, laughing like hell. Good for them. You know, if you would drive around here from Brudenell up to Algonquin Park and the leaves all in their glory, you would say that this is one of the best countries in the world. You go up where Shrine Hill is and you take your binoculars and look around at the area. It's incredible. We were out to BC for a holiday. I didn't think too much of it. We went out about this time of the year. They were cutting the grain in the west. Oh, it was nice to see. We looked out the window all day. I don't know. It's pretty hard to beat this country. That was a kind of way of life or something. I don't know how the hell to explain it. Baseball was the big thing in those days. The head man for Murray's was Tom Murray. He had baseball for breakfast, dinner, and supper. The grand old man of baseball. And if you were a ball player, he would give you a chance too. I'm not bragging, but I played ball. I was handy. Not any better than anyone else, but I took an interest in it. I got in with a gang, and in those days, I was sort of full of zip. I played center field. I had a very good arm. That is all I had. I wasn't very good with the bat. That is how I got the job in the camp. I went in and I said, Mr. Murray, I hear you're going to have a camp this winter. Yeah, we are, he said. Then do you know what he said to me? You look like a pretty good baseball prospect. So you better go ahead up to camp. So we had a little ball team up there. We all got together and we picked the stones off the field and we had a little ball, just to practice. Any games we played, we had to come to Madawaska or Barry's Bay. There were a few of us up there at Cross Lake. Then we got a few lads from Madawaska. Baseball was such a big sport in those days and it hasn't changed much. You have better gloves and better bats, but it has stayed the same rules pretty well. But I think there was a little more zip and vigor those days than what there is today. Most of your ball players in the big leagues now, they all want publicity. You know what I mean? If you hit a home run, you come in and they clap and all this stuff. In the older days, you made a home run, you ran the bases, you were out of wind, and you sat down. You know, things have changed. That was Barb Shepard Nicholson, Dan Nicholson, and Kate Nicholson 
all reading the words of Henry Nicholson, their father or grandfather. Time now for a short break, but do come back. The Nicholson clan are not finished with us yet, not by a long shot. There's much, much more to say about Henry Nicholson on this Father's Day. See you all back here in Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tale.